Hey, so welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you translate Donald Trump. We're diving deep into the Singapore summit today. First, we'll speak with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group, and get his thoughts on where things stand with North Korea after the summit. Joel will also have some thoughts for us about the G7 summit, or should it be the G8 summit, according to President Trump. Then we'll get Michael Anton's take. Michael is, of course, a former national security official in the Trump administration. He was part of the NSA. Currently, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. We'll also talk 2018 midterm elections with, I think, the smartest analyst out there. He is subtle, not just a bean counter. Sean Trendy, T-R-E-N-D-E, Senior Elections Analyst for Real Clear Politics. Love hearing from you guys, and let's go through a few emails, Claude. Okay, yeah, let's, let's. All right, Dr. Bennett, I've been catching up on the podcast and heard you lamenting that you had no sports to watch. Mm-hmm. Well, I did, but then I did kind of get into the caps and saw that. I kind of Johnny come lately, but... Well, then as we're recording this, you've got a red shirt on, so you're rocking the red well, I got well. a red shirt on, and I made a comment on TV that got around a little bit about when the caps won and Ovechkin... <laughs> Go to the White House, and he'd shake hands with Trump, and mm-hmm. Bob Mueller would have another nail in the coffin there. Right, you know? collusion, collusion, right there. yeah. Especially since, as my son told me, Vladimir Putin was at Ovechkin's wedding. Well, then you, you can't have Ovechkin at the White House. At that I guess point. not. At this point, you just no. can't. Stanley Cup or not? Right, right. Anyway, um, Jay Kelly, a woman from Cary, North Carolina, I know where that is. Uh, has the solution for me in case I don't have any more sports to watch this spring. <laughs> Not going to watch baseball. I get enough sleep as it is. <laughs> I have the solution for you. Tennis, in capital letters. That's the solution. Yeah, that's what okay. she says. Now, right. there are four major events every year and a minor tournament with the major players every week now till the U.S. Open in August. The added benefit is that when older tournaments are replayed, they will be new to you. <laughs> <clears throat> is it really a rerun if you've never seen it? Well, That's you know, a great question. And I, you know, I could maybe you could probably fool me too. We'll right. Show it one day and then show it the next. Yeah. Show you a uh, video of an old lottery uh, winning and give you the ticket. <laughs> well, what's the old joke? You went lost ten dollars on the game and another ten on the replay. Right. <laughs> exactly. So I'd like to add my voice to those wanting more podcasts. Well, first, let me talk about tennis. It lost me when they, I, I don't mean to be ethnocentric here or xenophobic, but when the world champion tennis players all have names that sound like they're the mayor of Chicago. <laughs> you know, Eddie Verdoliak and Roger Gazibagak and mm-hmm. all those L's and V's and YK's. I don't know who they are. Sure. And I can't tell one from the other. Well, the men's game has been dominated basically by two or three guys. I mean, Roger Federer, okay. uh, Rafa Nadal. Uh, and gosh, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but Eddie Verdoliak <laughs> or something like that. Who yeah. is Eddie Verdoliak? Uh, but the women's game has been much more entertaining the last few years. Well, the last five or ten years. I'm not commenting. Okay. I'm, I'm not right. getting myself okay. into trouble. I'm not commenting. <laughs> and I would like to add my voice to those wanting more podcasts. Uh, I miss morning in America, waking up with your crew. We do too, sort of, but mm-hmm. waking up at three thirty, <laughs> one crew member at a time. Was right. tough. <laughs> And I have to say, I really miss Latin Tuesday. That was terrific. We can try right. to throw a little Latin in. I don't we know. Can do we that. got a guest appearance from Dave over at State Department. We Dave Willisall, who did Latin Tuesdays, Jay uh, Kelly, 
uh, is writing speeches for Mike Pompeo. Yeah, we'll have to check all ethical media boundaries for that. Yeah, but, yeah, but sure. I mean, how impressive is that? When Very you, impressive. When you come to a Morning in America and you work for 15 bucks an hour, Good there's no, no place to go but up. <laughs> this is probably a terrible thing, but your show was my first introduction to philosophy. No, I didn't. No, no, it's fine. I've recently listened to Arthur Herman's The Cave and the Light. Found it extremely enlightening. I don't know that book, but I know Arthur Herman, and I think he's very good stuff. In your radio show, you would often weave pertinent philosophical points into the news of the day, and I always found that interesting. Well, that's before we had fake news. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just being silly this morning. In your current one hour a week, you don't seem to have enough time to explore philosophy as you did, and that's something that I do miss in the current format. I would love to hear more of that. All right, we'll try to do a little more philosophy. Sure. And speaking of more with you, uh, we should let people know that there's going to be an additional special feature on the podcast. You've had conversations with Mr. Charles Koch. Charles Koch of Koch Industries. Right. And right. so we'll be rolling that out towards the end of the month. Right. Uh, so you'll get two podcasts a right. week right. as long as those are rolled out. So Yeah, but we'll be rolling that out. Very interesting. He's got a theory and a vision of the world different from mine, but you can't argue with success. $60 billion is exactly. his net worth. Yeah, so the plan is to roll those out on Mondays and the podcast, obviously, on Thursdays. Really? Yes. But he's a bit of a, I mean, he's a genius. He's a visionary. He's mm -hmm. a far-reaching uh, guy and a philosopher. And his uh, virtuous cycle and uh, good profit work, amazing. Yeah. All right, here's another one. Hey, Bill, you certainly know well that in all matters of social and political that context is all important. And all matters, social and political context is all important. A couple of contextual items for you. One, uh, I attended an all-male public high school in the 50s. My classmates and I were so busy with academics, sports, and extracurricular activities that our days and lives were completely filled. There was no time, interest, and interpersonal conflict, and most of all, no females around to complicate our lives in uncountable ways. Okay. <laughs> Interesting theory of females complicate your lives in uncountable ways. Okay. All my teachers, save for languages, uh, were men. I worked after school and did athletics because I really wanted the spending money my parents could not provide. My hard work was rewarded with an NROTC scholarship for four years to Brown. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Back in the era before the craziness from which I was graduated Brown, and I spent a 23-year career in the Navy. How many Brown graduates today go into the Navy? I don't know. Or any branch of the services? I'll bet not many. In addition to the all-male school context, the model of the school in Baltimore, no less, was Palmam Qui Meruit Ferrat. Now, we're doing Latin, we're doing Latin Tuesday right now. <laughs> right. Let him who has earned the palm wear it. Wow, merit ruled. Rather the opposite of affirmative action, eh? By the way, I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school. Wow. To say nothing of Brown. Two, Bill, when you and Brian Kennedy were talking about missile defense, you missed some important contextual facts. When President Reagan and General Secretary Gorbachev were meeting in Reykjavik, the ABM Treaty of 1972 was in effect. Um, that treaty limited missile defenses severely, and the U.S. opted not to deploy the allowed defenses. But most importantly, the treaty placed no controls on research. That was what Gorbachev wanted Reagan to relinquish, research on strategic defense. Okay, I may not have made that clear enough. It was the SDI he was after, but not so much the implementation, which really wasn't there yet. Right, okay. 
uh, but research. And as we know, Reagan refused. Also, George W. Bush withdrew from that treaty. He didn't abrogate the treaty, as some have asserted. He withdrew from it. Both treaty provisions for no controls on research and the ability to withdraw from the treaty were strongly supported by the military delegation to the Strategic Arms Limitation Talk, SALT, of which I was a member, 1969 to 1971. Your show is tops with me. I listen while I exercise every morning. Best regards, I'm going to say this guy's name, Roger Barnett, Ph.D., Captain, U.S. Navy, Professor Emeritus, Naval War College. Thank you very much, Dr. Barnett. I really appreciate that. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. All right, it's time to jump in and discuss the Singapore Summit and some other matters, such as what happened in Charlevoix, Canada. Let's welcome Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. Well, okay, I'm watching uh, the returns here from Singapore and from the president's meeting with Kim Jong-un, and turns out what happened depends a whole lot on which channel you're watching. Now, we watch a lot of Fox at my house. <laughs> Looked like a pretty successful meeting. Shook hands, uh, agreed to, you know, denuclearize, uh, things going on down the pike, more meetings to occur to Mike Pompeo following up, but turned on CNN and MSNBC or some gremlin turned it on. And uh, it was a disaster. It was pointless. It was unnecessary. It was foolish. It was nugatory of no value. Which was it? Well, my favorite criticism uh, on President Trump's North Korean policy came last year when he was being very tough with them. And roundly, the press said his policy, his North Korean policy, is going to create famine in North Korea uh-huh. because he was going to make, make uh, uh, Kim Jong-un more insular. And I thought that was pretty funny that you could get a worse famine than they currently have. Right. So if they're starting off, if the press is starting off with President Trump is responsible for North Koreans uh, economic despair. Uh, I would not expect anything different. And uh, maybe, maybe, sure. maybe responsible for dictatorship too. Yeah, he's he's responsible for. It. And and furthermore, uh, you would you would only think that that's that the only leaders President Trump speaks with are totalitarian dictators. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's his. Yeah. That's yeah. that's who he invites over for 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 dinner. Let me throw. We in. heard a lot about also what they ate. We heard a lot about what they ate. Yeah. Let me throw in on this. One of the things that was said during the, quote, bellicose, close quote, period, when he was talking about raining fire and fury on them, was for Pete's sakes, you're going to start a war. For Pete's sake, sit down and talk to the guy first. So he did. And once he did, that was stupid, too. Whatever he does is wrong by the lights of some. Yeah. I, I wrote Howie Kurtz. You know Howie Kurtz on Fox. He's a yeah. media guy. Yeah. And I said, I know you collect this stuff. I, you know, I have never seen it quite so black and white, you know, uh, as as the reaction to this summit. I mean, it's extraordinary how these people could uh, react so negatively, it seems to me. I guess people don't like him. And when they don't like him, um, what happens when you don't like somebody? There's really two things. Either you get to know them. Or you despise them and you and you rant and rave at them. I, I was I was curious. It's kind of a human nature um, thing. The thing is a technical term. Um, <laughs> you really got two choices. You, you can either you can either be you can either talk about, repeat, and continually cajole over someone that you hate, or you can figure out how to work with them. Those are the two options. And, and 
Uh, obviously, whatever whatever option President Trump picks, those who hate him are going to make make their hate well known. Can we all agree right now? We understand that if you hate President Trump, you hate President Trump. I get it. You don't need to keep reminding me morning, noon, and night how much you hate him. You don't need I, Robert I De Niro. You don't need Robert De Niro to remind you. Well, I don't. Uh, I guess the, I guess you know. There's a few. There's probably a very few people that watch the Tony Awards. Those who did and those who were there thought it was nice. I, I don't. I don't need to hear it again. I. I am aware. I am fully aware that Robert De Niro does not like President Trump. You know, but I mean, this was. It seems to me this was really something. I mean, nobody'd been able to talk to this guy, and there he was, and he was smiling. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. And of course, you know, they've in the past said they were going to do things and didn't do it. But we haven't had this kind of context before. Handshakes, face-to-face, long talks, these sanctions are working. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I also have a lot of respect. This is one time we can, we can all agree that we have, we don't like to use the word never, but in this case it works. We have never had this before yeah. with North Korea. Yeah. Most people have never met most people in the world have never met a north korean this has never happened Good point. Uh, and so if, if something has never happened then you're right we're not sure what's going to happen but this is certainly a step in a different direction it's a very different direction you know i'll give you a little dc beltway you probably know it because you're smart and you read so much but uh obviously mike pompeo is getting a lot of credit which he deserves and putting together a team is a big part of an administration. Personnel, personnel, personnel. But who, you know who else gave you a lot of credit? And I didn't realize it so much. But everybody around town is talking about Nikki Haley and how tough she was at the U.N. I think that's an important point. He does have someone very re- re- resourceful and reliable backing him up and working with him. And uh, that's, a, that's a very good point. She has been... Uh, steadfast has been, and from the from the first day she stepped foot in the, in the United Nations, she's been consistently uh, on the same topics with the same values. We hear a lot about what are the values uh, that we want to portray. She's been a very good representative on on those values, and that was one and, of those very articulate. And that was very articulate. And that was one of those things you were just talking about. You know, if you don't like somebody, you know, abide in it, or you try to, you know find some way to overcome it or see the other side of it. That was one I wouldn't wasn't rooting for as a, as a Trump supporter. You remember she was very tough on Donald Trump. Very tough early in the campaign. Yes. But yes. he, you know, he said he let it go by. Let bygones be bygones. He thought she'd make a great ambassador. She's doing a great job at the UN. Yes, she is. And very yes, supportive is. of him whom she early on said no way. Very supportive of him uh, personally, but also very supportive of his policies and, 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 and extremely capable of con- communicating them, those policies, in, 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 in the ways that you're describing. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to see. It's rare to see, but it's nice to see. Well, we shall see what happens from here, but uh, I think this is a, this is a big deal. Um, let's go back, because I was just so taken. Let's get closer to home. Uh, just before... Um, he went to Singapore. He was in Canada, Charlevoix, uh, with the G7. Yes. Uh, you Boy, you had a great insight on this when we were talking and exchanging emails. Um, you know, first of all, everybody's making a whole lot out of the Trudeau and, and Trump stuff and then Trump and, and others. But the biggest thing was he said, you know, hey, G8, maybe it should be G8. Maybe Russia should get back in. 
and the screeches and screams and howls from the people there as well as the media. Tell us about that and what's uh, what's wrong with her. He's had a week of screeches and screams and howls, hasn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah, he gets a few weeks it, it without was... him, actually. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I thought what President Trump said about offhandedly, let's let Russia back in. I thought that was that was funny. I thought that was well said. What he could have said, though, I guess if he wanted to be more diplomatic, what President Trump could have said to all the other six nations is we might as well let Russia back in because most of you all are doing your own separate side bilateral deals with Russia. So let's let's not have this charade of kicking them out a few years ago. Bring them back in so that you can just tell everybody that that's what you're doing. That's a great point. Gosh, that's a great point, that locution. Hey, you all, we might as well let them back in to the group since you've let them back into your pockets individually, right? Yes. Tell tell us how they have. Tell us how they have. Well, who are the biggest... uh, of the biggest uh, squawkers we've heard, Canada, uh, Germany, and France. Uh, um, I, I, I'm, I, can, I can call them squawkers. They're allies. They're allies. Yes, they are, but they're squawkers. Um, what, what, have, what have these countries just done in the last few months? They also, they're mad at President Trump at the G7. They're also mad at him, still mad at him, about pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. Right. So having said all that, the French President, Macron, marched on up, about a month ago, to Russia with the CEO of Total, the largest energy company in France, one of the largest in the world. And what did they do? They had a a lovely signing ceremony with Vladimir Putin, where Total is now increasing their investment in uh, natural gas production in the Arctic. So with one fell swoop, they basically said, we're going to ignore Paris climate treaties, which uh, they they talk a lot about. And furthermore, we're going to increase, not not eliminate, but increase our partnership with Russia. And um, uh, all, I, I, I dare say I haven't heard one, uh, one press report of this in the United States. And I would expect at least some of the conservative authors, pundits, they would talk about it. Not a one, not a peep. I'm going to give you what did Germany uh, just do? I'm going to give you the I'm podcast sorry, award. No, I mean, I, look, I didn't until, until you brought it up. I had a I had not heard it. B I had not thought it. Uh, I hadn't thunk it myself, so uh, kudos to you. Look, I mean, the the as you said, we might as well, the locution, we might as well bring him back in. The kind of attitude that came out of their comments and the media's comments about this reaction to the Russia thing was, well, my God, these countries don't want anything to do with Russia. Why would Trump want anything to do with Russia? And it's the exact opposite that's taken place in several of them. France is not the only one, right? Can you imagine if President Trump marched on up with ExxonMobil and signed a deal with Vladimir Putin to to explore and produce the Arctic? I mean, that's just that's almost ridiculous to think about. But that's what happened with France. Why did you know? Why did the G G eight kick out Russia? They kicked Russia out because of their activities in the Ukraine and Crimea, and Crimea taking over Crimea. Well, Russia had a pipeline, a gas pipeline going through the Ukraine to serve Europe, in particular Germany, but Western Europe. And because Russia didn't want to, they want to put squeeze and put pressure on the Ukraine to get Crimea, they kind of renegotiated and 
took away their, uh, the, 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 the revenue source for Ukraine. So what did they do? And, and then obviously we know that the world said, we're going to impose sanctions. Russia's disrupting the world order. We're going to kick them out of the G8. That's what we're going to do. Impose sanctions and kick them out. So that was in 2014. What just happened here four years later in 2018, Germany, Germany just agreed to and signed a deal with Russia to build an alternative pipeline from Russia to Germany. For those of you who don't, can't visualize this, pull up a map, pull up a world map, you can see it. And the pipeline goes under the Baltic Sea. So it's not only a pipeline, it goes under the Baltic Sea. And they had to get Sweden and, and Norway and Denmark's uh, approval also to build this. And, and they got it all, everyone approved it. And now this pipeline is going to get built. Has any of these nations realized that we impose sanctions on Russia to kick them out of the G8? But Germany, against our wishes, against the United States' wishes, we implored them, don't do this. They did it anyways. And here we now have um, a consortium of Austrian, uh, UK, and German companies to partner with Russia to build a pipeline under the Baltic Sea. I don't know how many I don't know how many violations of the Paris Climate Treaty or sanctions this this, this encompasses, but regardless of violations, it's just loony, insane hypocrisy for these leaders of these nations to lambast and lecture our president on his his discussions and his behavior. They should be ashamed of themselves. France and Germany should be ashamed for opening their mouths towards our president in the way they did. There's been a lot of requests for Trump to apologize. That's my request. Yeah, you know, this message has to get through. I've, I've sent a memo over to some people who might be able to get it in the right places, but I miss the double point. The double point is, one, the hypocrisy. Russia, my God, Russia. You, I, We wouldn't do any business with Russia. Meantime, they're doing a lot of business with Russia. And two, as you said, early on, the, these folks are still mad about the walking out of the Paris Accords. And they're doing the stuff in the Arctic and under the Baltic, just violating left and right and center, all sorts of provisions, intense principles of the Paris Accords as it, as the stuff affects the environment. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 uh, the, the, a wonderful quote from the, the head of Total, the French, French energy company. He was asked, why are you doing this? Why, why are you entering this agreement? He said, quote, we signed it because we saw the opportunity. Unquote. That was it. Next, next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that 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 stands by itself. Let's go back to Trump then on the on the international stage. Let me put forward again. I thank you for that great insight about the, those countries in Russia. Let's go back to Trump on the world stage. You know, and we've kind of tracked it with your with your discussions, your our interviews with you about his standing in the polls. One of the reasons it seems to me he is ascending is because he is the beneficiary of such low expectations from the middle. We talked to our uh, expert pollster, uh, Sean Trendy, who polls for Real Clear Politics about this. But there, there were people who heard, people who were not Trump supporters, who heard these dire warnings that it would be the end of the world, that Trump would destroy the country, get us into war, be a madman. And lo and behold, after 500 days and, and a few, hasn't happened. So no, uh, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. So there you go. So people say, well, you know, not so bad. And actually, on some fronts, things are pretty good. 
You're exactly right. And he has benefited from low expectations. In addition to that, he's benefited by uh, some really high performance. His message, President Trump's message as a, as a president and as a candidate, was almost exclusively about jobs. I am going to provide to the best I can opportunities for Americans to have jobs. Um, your uh, President Reagan, whom you you worked for and, and know well, he used to uh, try to explain economics simply. A recession is when your neighbor loses their job. A depression is when you lose your job. <laughs> and President Trump is just talking about you, a lot of people haven't had a job, and we want you to have a job. Now, why is that so controversial? I, I, um, the economists, you mentioned that basically the, the, the criticism around the world, it's pretty clear to me why that's controversial with our elites, our academics, and our economists. Because the economists be- believe in something called, not believe, but they actually research and and it's peer-reviewed. There's some sort of a, a, a gauge called the natural rate of employment, and that's some sort of number. And in the common, in economists' viewpoint, and this is decades long, there there can there can be too much employment if you have too many people working, too low of unemployment. Wages go up, inflation goes up, and the economist's dream is to make sure that they manage and control, manage and control through their, their, their Federal Reserve actions, that rate. Well, what's been going on is what the economists believed was a natural rate of employment. We are now substantially below that. We're at 3.8% right now. Right. They used to think it was 5%. Right. And guess what's happened? We haven't had inflation. We've had more people working. We've had more jobs created. We've had more GDP increase. Every single thing, the orthodoxy of the economic group of, 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 of experts is thrown on its ear. And who has thrown it on its ear? It's our current president. And he's just not going to get any one of them admitting they were wrong. They're going to only describe why his policies will imperil and damage the United States. Well, it hasn't. Right. Do I infer from that that, you know, I threw it out in passing. It's going on. The guy's actually a neighbor of ours. The guy picked to head the Fed, Jerome Powell. Um, Uh they They shouldn't raise the rates? Well, Jerome Powell, thankfully, he is the chairman of the Fed right. now. Um, and I say thankfully because for the first time we have a masterful expert acknowledging what, what I've just described. I, it, it's not right. something I came up with, but he was recently in Basel, Switzerland with the uh, Bank of International S- Settlements group of central bankers around the world. The main topic of their conversation is we need to rethink we need to understand what employment does or doesn't do to inflation because their gauges have been wrong. And he is actually, for the first time, looking at that. Now, his predecessor, uh, Bernanke, he's recently just, he recently came out and said, uh, he thought he was being funny. He said, uh, President Trump's policies are going to be like Wiley Coyote uh, falling off a cliff. Why? I'm not going to get too wonky here, but why? Because we're already at full employment. So to create more jobs is going to exacerbate the economy. So that's what the prior Fed chairman said. Uh, Yale economist Schiller says the same thing. We are at full employment. The only way we can accommodate more jobs is if we have improvement, improved productivity or improved technology. We can't do it by hiring more people. Well, this is the, if the Trump voter. Yeah that your pollster was talking about, many of them either did not have a job 
or wanted a better job. So my friends in the economic world, this is why no one listens to you. And this is why they listen to President Trump, because they want a better job, but they want a job. And it's working. Got it. So not not necessarily a bad thing to, to raise interest rates. No, it's not a bad thing. He's He clearly has to deal with inflation. Sure. So the, their tool, the, their, their ability is to ratchet up gradually, inflate uh, rates, to retard that. Right. But that is distinctly it. different. It's distinctly different than saying, I'm going to raise rates faster because unemployment has gone down too fast. Yeah. That's... And that's what he understands that his predecessors didn't. Very good. He understands that he can be careful. Good, good. I will tell him you said so the next time I see him. Um, Thank, thankfully, he's our he's our chairman. Business guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, Joel, we started in Singapore. We went to Canada, Washington. Let's get closer to home. Are you speaking to us from California or Colorado or where are you? Well, Idaho, Idaho. Okay. Um, my other favorite place in the united states okay okay uh let's not talk about the three states of idaho because i (laughs) i don't think there's a there's such a movement but there is i was all over fox the last 24 hours the three states of california would you a tell us what this is and what happened to the idea of just secession and floating out there in the pacific ocean and being done with california which I was sort of hoping for. I love a lot of you, but, you know, I'm I'm sorry. Good with the bad. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, as Shakespeare says. Yes. But now it's not uh, California's going, 49 states, but California's going to morph into three states. What are they? Well, can we... Can, can we at least uh, tell all the uh, elected officials from California who would like to tell the rest of America that they are the largest, most prosperous, finest, most wonderful state in the country, and everything is wonderful? Can we at least tell them that maybe you got a few issues? Yeah, you got a few and issues. And one of them is, <laughs> you got a few issues. One of them is there's a lot of people in California that are fed up with your policies. So and we've learned that. Okay. We've learned that there is some discord in California. Um, yeah, but the discord, as I'm saying, it goes to the end, and then it gets confused as to whether either the solution is to be gone or multiply. <laughs> yeah, and and so the the, uh, the same person tried uh, a few years ago to turn it into six states. Now he's reduced it to three. Um, there, first of all, this is never going to happen, but it's fun to watch. The three states that they basically have proposed you can envision them as uh, there's a Northern California, Southern California, and a California. Northern California is basically San Francisco and the Bay Area. California is basically L.A. and the coast, you know, down there. And the other California is basically San Diego and the Central Valley. What that really is is taking the three largest metropolitan areas and creating a state around them, whether it's San Francisco, L.A., or San Diego. Uh, so... From a political standpoint, you basically created three large Democratic falling states. But also from an infrastructure standpoint, which I don't think anyone has thought through, most of the water that California has that's available to serve the state is in Northern California. So it's I, I view it from a resource standpoint, an interesting way of basically yeah. taking the water resources of the state and giving it to the Bay Area. That's another reason it's never going to happen. It's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's it's funny to watch, but... Um, well, this guy's you know, no uh, fool, right? This is Tim Draper, uh, or, or, is, or is he... No. Okay, so what's, no. what, what's he no. think he's achieving by doing this? 
uh, creating uh, nobody uh, nobody in the United States has ever thought of California as anything other than a state that wants to get out. And what he's achieving is making it apparent to the rest of the country there's a whole bunch of people in the state that like America. They just don't have the they don't have the uh, uh, the majority in, in the state legislature or the Senate or the congressman. But uh, he's just creating uh, interest and publicity. But is he, so cons- is he a conservative? I don't know him. Okay. I don't know him. Because you said this would make six Democrat senators. There's not a red state in those made up of those three new states. Is that correct? Well, it's, certain, it's certainly, I mean, arguably maybe the Southern California one with San Diego could arguably be conservative. But the, the one that's centered around L.A., the one that's centered around San Francisco, right. uh, no chance it'll be anything other than Democrat. Well, you it, know, does, it does <laughs> tell you something, though, doctor. And I, I, I know you're not a doctor, but you become a doctor. <laughs> Because if people keep coming up with solutions like we need to secede, we need to go into the ocean, we need to divide into three, we need to multiply by three, tells you things aren't all right in the state of Denmark or California. No, they're not. Congressman Brad Sherman, when he was asked um, very pointedly, uh, why are why is everyone California's got the highest poverty rates, got the highest homelessness rate? People are leaving. Uh, housing is unaffordable. He was asked this question, and his answer was, "California is a great place. The reason our housing costs so much is everybody wants to live here. Yeah, so it's really not our fault. Everyone wants to be here. Yeah, Congressman Sherman, that's not true. People are leaving, and people are angry. But uh, yeah, no, there's." I like your comment. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Yeah, and a lot. And you've chronicled it for us. We appreciate your work for American Strategy Group as well. Thank you very much. Take care. That was Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. As I mentioned before, I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now for more on the Singapore Summit, Michael Anton. He's a brilliant former senior national security official in the Trump administration. At present, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Let's go back to Charlevoix. I know your national security, and this isn't exactly national security, but it's foreign policy, and you know a lot about a lot of things. Uh, we just had a, uh, one of our guests on, Joel Farkas, businessman from California, who said, you know, uh, nobody has made the point that he has uh, kind of insisted on, that when they all fussed have been talking about bringing in Russia or considering bringing back Russia, that they all talked as if uh, Russia was some kind of pariah state and how could he be talking about them in such dulcet terms. And as he pointed out, he said they might as well have said, well, we might as well bring back Russia since several of us have already made bilateral deals with them. Uh, and he was talking about... Uh, well, in particular, the Germans made right. what the president has regarded, and he has said to Angela Merkel in pretty blunt terms that he thinks this gas pipeline is very bad for her country and puts her at the mercy of a foreign power that doesn't necessarily wish her or her country well in all uh, circumstances. So, yeah, that's absolutely right, that, that you know many of these countries have made their own side deals and with France, Russia. And France and Macron made a, made a deal, too, a big deal. So what... If we back up a little bit, what got Russia kicked out of what had been briefly, you know, it was always the G7, was briefly the G8, and then went back to being the G7, was uh, first the seizure of Crimea, and second, the invasion of eastern Ukraine, or at least the supporting of uh, 
separatists in eastern Ukraine with Russian arms and money, right? So the European um, got together, said this is this is, an, and the Obama administration said this is unacceptable uh, until the status quo ante is restored. You know, Russia should essentially be isolated from these kinds of multilateral, high prestige venues. Now, as a, as a matter of fact, I can tell you that there's nobody in the foreign policy establishment, even in the somewhat corrupt and desultory U.S. foreign policy establishment, there's nobody dumb enough to believe the Russians are ever going to give Crimea back. So that status quo ante is not happening. Um, it doesn't mean that anybody, any government necessarily should or will formally recognize Crimea, but uh, no, nobody should be holding out with the, the hope that they're actually going to overturn that that outcome. Um, Eastern Ukraine is, is a different, a separate question, uh, in a way thornier, but also potentially easier to solve because the Russians, for a while, it appears to you know everything we see have been stuck there. They're not making a whole lot of progress. They don't look like they're going to be able to achieve any kind of permanent seizure or annexation. It's, a, it's you know, to, to borrow a term from the American foreign policy past, it looks kind of like a quagmire for them. And uh, the way a lot of people see it, and I think this is a reasonable way to see it, is they, you know, they don't know, they don't see a way out. In other words, they don't see a way to have peace with honor. They, 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 they can't win. They don't really want to keep fighting there. But any kind of concession or withdrawal will look like a defeat and will be a blow to Russian prestige. And so they just kind of, the, the, the fight just kind of drags on um, without much benefit to, to Moscow. So that conceivably is resolvable. You know, there is a, there is a framework for resolving it called the, the Minsk agreements, the Minsk Accords, yeah. uh, that the Russian signs themselves, but haven't implemented um, for, you know, reasons, I guess, only they know, or I suppose that Putin just believes that doing so will be ignominious somehow and will be too embarrassing. And so it's better to keep fighting uh, a, a, or losing, or if not losing, at least an inconclusive fight indefinitely than admit that you bit off more than you can chew and he, and he doesn't know what to do about it. But but, but it still stands. What, 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 uh, what I was saying here about, about Germany and France and the hypocrisy yeah. with the deals. I also, it was suggested in this earlier conversation, that uh, you know, there's still some uh, anger and bitterness from the G7 guys about uh, the Paris Accords, but at the same time, these two big gas deals are apparently highly, at least according to our guests, highly questionable in terms of environmental impact under the Baltic and so on. It's pretty risky business in terms of the. There's environment. a little bit of resi- I don't think there's much residual bitter bitterness about the Paris Accords. You I don't? do think though you don't. that okay. they're they're very upset about the trade actions that the president has taken recently, and okay. which you know to which I've made the following point. Um, on, you know, on Cuomo, I think they might have cut this part, but look, the president. Michael, had Michael, ex- I'm interrupting. Yeah. I'm interrupting you, Michael. I, I, you know so much more than I do, but I do know TV, radio. Live to yeah. tape, live to yeah. tape. You know what that means, right? Well, I had to. I yeah, I know. I I, 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 I agree uh, to it unless it is. I mean, I man, they I, wanted me on at nine, and I, I you're right. I, they wanted me on at nine. I couldn't do nine because I had a dinner last night, so I, I pre-taped it. But right, no, still look, live to tape, still right, live. I got to tape. you. I uh, look. The president actually showed an extraordinary amount of patience with the Europeans, with Canadians, with the G seven. He's been. He said all throughout the campaign. If I can't get these trade relationships fixed, I'm going to start implementing tariffs. I'm going to retaliate, right? It has to be reciprocal. And if the other side won't even it out, I'm going to even it out on my side. If that means increasing trade barriers to the levels that they have them at on us, I'll do that. He made that very, very clear. 
all throughout the administration, my time there, my 14, 15 months there, he was very eager to do this and kept accepting delays, both because members of his own team said, let us study this further, let us see if we can come up with a better outcome, you know, and, and he would heed them. And the allies themselves would call and say, you know, they would always call him by his first name, you know, Justin Trudeau or Emmanuel Macron would say, please, please, Donald, don't do this. Um, give us more time. We're going to fix this relationship. We're going to work it out. And he accepted their entreaties over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think he finally got to a point where he just said, look, I've given you far more time than I had ever had any plan to. If you were serious about fixing this, about addressing these problems, you would have done it by now. I think he, he concluded that they were stringing him along. I think he concluded that rightly and just said, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not waiting anymore. If you, if you were serious about addressing this, you'd have done it. You haven't. So I'm going to take the action that I told you I was going to take all along. So when people, you know, when the critics of the president say he's damaging these alliances, I just flip that back around and say, well, who's really damaging the alliance? Isn't, isn't it the ally who's dumping products into our market and who puts tariffs, many multiples, uh, the, uh, the level of our uh, tariffs, on the same product. So if we're at 10%, I'm just, you know, pulling this out of thin air, but there are examples. If we're at 10% on something and another country is at 25% on the same product, wait, who's really damaging the alliance? Yeah. I would say it's the country that's taking advantage of us, not us for finally standing up for ourselves. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's go for five, seven minutes to um, Singapore. Now, uh, what do I what do I do I miss here during the comments about fire and fury, which is when you were there, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, people said, for God's sakes, he's going to start a war. Um, why don't we try diplomacy? Uh, right. I, I think you could describe what just happened as diplomacy. And now he tries diplomacy, and everybody says this is an outrage, and it's so shameful that the president of the United States is meeting with this bad man, and you know, uh, talking gives Kim a platform. It elevates his prestige, and it's you know a huge gift to this horrible country at the expense of the United States. So Trump can't win either way. He's either being um, too bellicose on, uh, on on a country that now all of the president's critics admit is one of the worst tyrannies in the world, but you know. Six months ago, speaking harshly about that tyranny was an outrage. Now, talking directly to the leader of the tyranny is an outrage. It seems I've, if, if I were the president, you know, he treated the other day basically the same thought. You know, whatever I do, so right. <laughs> I can do the exact opposite of something somebody was criticizing me for yesterday, and then they'll criticize me for that today. Right. I can understand his frustration on that point. Right. If I didn't kill someone on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue, I'd still be criticized. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, sorry, that's the philosopher playing here. Uh, okay. Um, why do you think we have something here? I mean, I, I guess well, we, we all agreed we don't know for sure yet, right? It's in proofs in the pudding and in the eating. But wh- why do you think uh, our odds are, 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 are better than the skeptics say? Well, we don't know how this is going to turn out. Right. And right. I think we ought to keep our expectations pretty low because right. the North Koreans have a history of coming to the table, making a deal, cheating on the deal, and, you know, ending up, we all end up in a worse position than we were in before we were talking. The advantages we have now, I think, are primarily two, but they're big. One is the, the, the administration knows the script. They know how the North Koreans play this game, they're not going to fall for it. Or at least if they do fall for it, they'll have only themselves to blame. And I don't expect that they will fall for it. I think they, they see this coming. I'm, you know, they, they absolutely know all the tricks that the North Koreans will attempt. And the second is, I think that 
I know that the, the level of pressure that is on the North Korean regime right now has never been as high as, as, as it is now. So they, I believe, are feeling more economic pain uh, than they've ever felt. And it comes down to this, right? The, the nuclear program is, at bottom, they think a regime survival guarantor. It's their insurance policy. Mm-hmm. This guarantees mm-hmm. that what happened to East Germany, what happened to the Soviet Union, what happened to you know other other uh, communist dictatorships will not happen to us. We will survive, and because we will have nuclear weapons to guarantee that survival, right? But what if nuclear weapons, if that script can be flipped, and the nuclear program turns into the opposite? a net drag on the country. Keep in mind, they're very expensive. It's very expensive to make nuclear fuel, to maintain a nuclear infrastructure, to build these bombs, right? Uh, This is the poorest country that's ever done it, right? The second poorest, I suppose, would be Pakistan, but it's a much much larger country. Yeah. And and, and Pakistan also had significant outside help, probably more than the North Koreans had. So we we think, you know, the best estimate of... uh, U.S. analysts who watch uh, these things is that the North Koreans spend somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of GDP on the military, which is an wow. astonishingly high figure. Wow. Right. I mean, the Americans, we spend it's under four right now. I think it's about 3.6. Anyway, maybe it's creeping up toward four, given that the president made a significant investment in the military after many years of neglect. And of that, some half or perhaps more is has to be spent on the nuclear program. So you can yeah. imagine the gigantic diversion of resources that go yeah. into this program yeah. out of what is a very low baseline in that economy. Okay, now they're being choked in a number of different directions economically. They have a hard time importing fuel oil, which they don't produce. Um, they're having a harder time selling coal, uh, which is the only thing they really do produce aside from missiles and nuclear weapons. Uh, they have almost no access to the global financial system. And since their currency is worthless, the only way they can import anything from the outside world is to build up their uh, foreign hard currency reserves. And that's gotten much more difficult given how well we've choked off their access to the financial system. So the year of maximum pressure that the president and his allies spent building up probably is causing more pain to that country than they've ever felt before. And it leads them to have to face a choice. If, 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 if as they get poorer and poorer, if this works, um, does the nuclear program become a net drain that actually threatens regime survival because they won't have enough money to simply function and have a proper economy and feed the people and, and you know, um, fund the regular military that protects the borders and things like that. That's the calculus, right? That is really the gambit of what we're doing here because they're not going to denuclearize out of the goodness of their hearts. They're going to denuclearize if, only if they conclude that denuclearization is the only way they can keep the country going. All right. I, I, let's let's stay with that last phrase, keep the country going. Are, are these possible scenarios? You denuclearize and you keep the country going. That is, you give up half of the 40% that's going to these nuclear uh, efforts, uh, and you put that back into the economy. Uh, well, and presumably uh, also if they denuclearize, as, as the Secretary of State and others have, and the President have promised, they will, um, they, they'd be happy to help facilitate uh, investment inflows right, into North right, Korea. Right, right, right. Yeah, so no, I'm, I'm going actually to see their... I'm going a somewhat different direction. I'm, I'm just, I, in listening to the criticisms, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the people who didn't say anything about it during earlier administrations are very worried about, you know, the, the uh, I don't know what the number is of people in the gulag uh, in, yeah. their, in their prison camps. Can, can he sustain that country 
and that totalitarian country by redeploying resources and stay as a dictator. Supposing he likes being a dictator and likes locking people up who dissent or there's a yeah. rumor of dissent. Can he keep that? I mean, look, I, I think he can. I've looked at the, the Chinese example certainly okay. suggests that That's it's right. possible to right. modernize an economy and open it up to um, private investment and even foreign investment yep. and Still. yet maintain one-party control. Now, the communist dictatorship in China is different. It's not a family-based dictatorship like you have in North Korea. It's more of what you know, Machiavelli called an elective principality in uh, Prince 19. In other words, the, the poobahs sort of get together in secret when it's time to elect right. a new right. king. And they, now, now, now that may have changed since, as you saw, uh, Xi Jinping got the term limit law lifted. Uh, you know, there's supposed to be, there used to yeah. be uh, a, China, a president of China and a party chairman was limited to two five-year terms, so 10 years in all, and he got that lifted. So he's going to be in there for a while, uh, probably for life. And the question is, when he goes, what do, do they revert back to an election, or is there some way he can um, uh, make this, uh, you know, uh, his own gift? I doubt it, but that remains to be seen. It's clear, though, that for the Kim family, you know, this is not elective. This is a hereditary. This is a hereditary old, principality. Yeah, an old or, mon- or hereditary tyranny. Old favorite uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, question: political theory, political philosophy. Amer was alive when we when I was at Empower America, discussing whether we as an organization were going to endorse most favored nation, uh, mm-hmm. and everybody, Kirkpatrick, Kemp. Uh, the whole crew, Vin Weber, all were in favor of it except for Rumsfeld and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't know why exactly I needed to read and study and, and so on. But it was based on the old notion of the, you know, the more the more capitalism comes in, the more trade comes in, the likelier uh, communism lose, lo- the joints get loosened of totalitarianism. Is that Which, true? You know, that was that was the bet made by the whole American foreign policy right. establishment. Was that Not true? just with most favored nation and with WTO accession. Right, right. But all kind of, this was a this was an ongoing debate. You know, if we think way back, so Kissinger and Nixon. Um, I've actually heard this argue both ways. One is that they flipped China toward us. The other is that the Chinese just decided that they they needed they needed us, and uh, the whole thing was more um, Mao's idea and the Chinese idea than it was Kissinger's and Nixon. But that'll be a debate that we can have another okay. time. Okay. In any event, the Chinese allied. They did align themselves with the United States for so long as the Soviet Union was around, and for the first. 20 years or so since you know Deng took complete power in 1979 it seemed like China was going in a more liberalizing direction that was absolutely true of the economy and it was probably true to some extent in politics given that it culminated in 1989 in the Tiananmen Square protest there must have been some spirit of liberty running through the people or they wouldn't have dared to pour out in, in those kinds of numbers uh, at grave risk of their own lives um, and we saw what the Chinese government did it cracked down hard. The lesson it took from the breakup of the Soviet Union and from Gorbachev and from Tiananmen Square was this liberalization can be taken way too far, and we're not going to make that mistake again. Uh, we need the money, so we're going to keep on with the liberalization of the economy, but we're going to try to tighten control uh, of politics, which they did through, through the course of the 90s. Even so, through the course of the 90s, the American foreign policy establishment through the 90s and the 2000s absolutely insisted that, first of all, it really insisted two things. One is that the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy were interdependent and, you know, all the theories of free trade and all of the economic orthodoxy that you and I know would, would ultimately redound to our benefits, so there's no point in being protectionist or in being in any, in any way, you know, wary of China's economic intentions. But then the, the second argument, which I think was made 
in part to make people feel better about the first argument was that, oh, this is going to be great for China because it will it will inevitably liberalize the country. Right. Uh, that clearly did not happen. And in fact, right. under Xi Jinping, we're seeing China go in completely the opposite direction. If you if you read about what they're doing, you know, the, the, the way they use social media in that country is essentially a a gigantic omnipresent spy network, the social credit scores and things like that. It's really creepy. It's, it's, you know, if Orwell had written 1984, not in 1948, when we didn't have any digital technology, but he were to write it again today, imagine all the things that he could dream up for the state. Yeah, no The kidding. tools he could dream up for the right. state to use to keep track of you. That The Chinese are essentially doing all of those things. And so okay. that bet that the U.S. foreign policy establishment made, we lost. All right. So so he could, to my answer about North Korea specifically then, he could trade in the nuclear stuff, get some more money for the country, but still be a very repressive dictator. He could. Okay. He He's almost certainly going to be reluctant to do that. If, if you know other reasons, is that he, look, if he, if he looks around the world, what does he see? Um, and just try to see the world through his eyes for, for a moment, right? He sees that countries that have nuclear weapons, not one of them has ever been felled by an outside force. Countries that never got there have been. Countries that gave up their nuclear weapons voluntarily or their nuclear program voluntarily, uh, some of them have, have, you know, have had the regimes flipped, um, you know, changed, <laughs> ousted. So. He sees that, and that probably makes him think that nuclear weapons are the ultimate guarantor, and he'd rather not give them up. The only way he's going to give them up is if he thinks the cost is so high that it guarantees a bankruptcy or a level of resource flow so low that he can't keep the machinery running. And the only way that's going to happen is if the South Koreans, and especially the Chinese, stay with us. And they're, they're going to be tempted not to. And Kim knows that. And one of the cards that he's going to play repeatedly is he's going to try to split us off from our South Korean allies. And he's going to try to encourage the Chinese to okay. back off the pressure. Because if we don't have Chinese pressure on North Korea, we don't have anything. We can't we cannot pursue this policy. Uh, the only right. way to keep the screws to him is with Chinese pressure. All right. So it's, not, it's going to be sticks. It's not going to be. I thought that video, I thought it was fascinating, that little video. Uh, who made that CIA? We think. Do we know who made that video? I I don't know. Or, uh, however, but uh, but we don't think. You know, a friend of mine was watching. He said, "Ah, oh, yeah, he'll give it up. He wants to go to Vegas. You know, like the rest of us." And um, bumper cars, Disney World, Dennis Rodman. Uh, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't get get inside his head. But uh, is it possible that not just sticks, but carrots, a better life? Yeah. No. Know? It'll be a. I think what'll have to happen is a combination of both. But it's how they're sequenced. So um, it is. We lift up. We take a stick off you, which is in itself a carrot, right? And it, think about it this way: if we're going to use this analogy, right? The sticks are all on him. They're beating him right now, constantly. Essentially, what we'll say is, okay. For every site that you blow up, for every missile that you dismantle, for every pile of spent fuel rods that you turn over to leave your country never to return, we take off a stick, right? And we're going to sequence it out that way. We're going to come up with all the list of things that we want them to do, all the sites that we want them to dismantle or destroy, we want inspected, all the specific missiles that we want them to destroy, all the equipment that we want them to turn over. We're going to come up with a list, and we will come up with a, um, our own list of, of reciprocal actions. You do X, we stop doing Y. Okay. Um, but you have to do X first in every case, and it's got to be verified. Otherwise, this doesn't come off. To which certainly the North Koreans will say, 
we don't trust you. How do we know we can believe you? We should do it simultaneously. And there will be a temptation. I'm sure that a lot of them in the, in the liberal commentary, the people who are criticizing the president now will turn on a dime and they will later say, yeah, the president should make all these goodwill measures and, and start lifting sanctions either first or concurrently and things like that. And if we do that, then it's almost guaranteed not to work because that's playing into the North Korean playbook. They will happily accept everything we give them. They will be delighted to get out from under whatever pressure we are able to lift. And the more we do that in advance, the less incentive they will have to reciprocate, and they won't. They will probably stay true to past type. Okay. Um, You've been very generous with your time, Michael. We know how busy you are, how much in demand you are. Just the last thing. Uh, because you said uh, maybe 15 minutes ago, 12 minutes ago, uh, we don't know how this is going to turn out. Analogy from sports, first quarter, look for how many times Brady throws the ball, look for how much of the running game. What do we look for? What will be the signs that things are going well or not well, either either things that will happen or timing or whatever? I think the next, the next thing to look Keys for to the would game. be essentially the, the, the list or, or the schedule that I just – out, you know, okay. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm not speaking from any direct knowledge that you know. I know exactly how this is going to play out, but it's going to have to be something like that. I mean, the, the alternative might be and the North Koreans would never go for this. That's why I don't think what I'm about to say would ever work. But we could just say, okay, you do complete and total denuclearization, and when it's 100% finished, then we'll start talking about lifting sanctions. See, that's not a, they'll say that's not a good deal for us. We need to get out from under this as soon as possible. So I think if we if we came up with some arrangement where we staggered it, that could work. But they, in every instance where um, we couple their destruction of some site with lifting our lifting of some sanctions, mm-hmm. they have to go first every time, and it has to be verified before we follow up. And they'll say, "How can we believe you? How can we trust you?" And then we will have to say in response. That's a better question uh, from us to you, since you're the ones who've cheated on every deal that you've made so far, not us. I got it. Good. Good. Michael, thank you very much. Just terrific. We appreciate it. And we will be back to you. We know we'll be, you'll be watching this closely. You, you, di- you didn't thank produce you. that movie, though, right? For sure. No, I did not. With the bumper cars. And the- <laughs> I did not. I was just thinking, you know, Trump could take him around New York, you know? I mean, well, yeah, Reagan took Gorbachev around New York. Now, yeah, well, again, that was that was in the almost the waning day. That was in the waning days of the Reagan administration after they had had several uh, meetings yeah. and gotten made a lot of progress. Yeah, I saw you know, the it. other the other thing. And there's a great analogy here too. I saw Geneva him on meeting, Connecticut Avenue. You know, I saw Gorbachev on Connecticut Avenue. Go ahead. Go the ahead. Geneva meeting between Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, the initial meeting, November of 1985, was a big success. It, it, you know, it was a big success optically in terms of getting the relationship off the right foot, but they didn't accomplish anything. So this is sort of what Trump's critics are saying right now. Well, they didn't accomplish anything. Well, no first meeting ever accomplishes anything, so that's a dumb criticism. The second meeting, Gorbachev tried to pull a fast one on Reagan, and Reagan left, walked away from the table. I expect that if Kim tries to pull a fast one on Trump in the future, Trump will do the same thing. In fact, he has said he will. So... I think we ought to be looking for that and see what, what happens at meeting two, if there is a summit two or whether that meeting two takes place at the Pompeo level or wherever. See what the North Koreans come to the table with and whether the United States walks away or not. That'll be, that'll be a sign of how serious the North Koreans are being. Last quick question. Is this too dire, too dark a thought, which is that he's done something very smart here, back to fire and fury? You know, if you are not going to take that off the table, the one thing you've got to do first is try diplomacy. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think what well, I think okay. the North Koreans need to know that our deterrent posture is serious. Anytime yeah. this is what people who criticize, you know, strong rhetoric they don't understand is that soft rhetoric leads to doubt among adversaries and allies alike as to whether your yeah. deterrent threat is credible, whether yeah. you actually will follow through. And as soon when allies think you're not going to follow through, they start trying to make separate accommodations with adversaries and enemies. When enemies think you're not going to follow through, they get emboldened and they act a lot more recklessly on the world stage. I see really very little downside in being completely clear about that point so that everybody knows uh, uh, what not to do and how not to provoke us. Great. Thank you, Michael. Thanks very much. Thanks. All right. That was Michael Anton, former senior national security official in the Trump administration and current writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's change direction. Let's talk about the 2018 midterm elections. Getting a lot of ink these days. Joining us now is Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst for Real Clear Politics. Sean Trendy. Hi, how are you doing? How are you? How are you? So glad to get you. I'm doing well, thanks. Okay, we hear all the time, we see all the time, generic congressional ballot. How much stock do you put in something called the congressional uh, generic congressional ballot. You know, the generic ballot is one of those things that uh, is kind of like a good rule of thumb. Um, we, it usually gets you in the end within a couple points of how the national vote uh, pans out, but it's not perfect. Uh, of course, winning the national vote doesn't necessarily mean you win control of Congress, uh, but it often does. Right. I was just thinking that national vote could be like Hillary winning the national vote, right? Not the well, we saw it in 2012 where the Democrats won the national vote for the House uh, and yet by about a half point and yet uh, came up short uh, in, in, in the race for seats. Uh, and so, again, it's just kind of a loose indicator of where the vote for the House uh, is headed. What you really want to look at is the state-by-state polling if it's available. And it's swinging around a lot lately, from what I can tell. It was uh, pretty wide, Democrats holding a big advantage. Then it was narrowed by the Republicans. Now it's lengthened out a little bit for Democrats. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like any poll. Uh, there's there's always going to be noise in it. Uh, we did see kind of a, a slow-moving uh, decline in the Democrats' standing from about December to the beginning of June that kind of mirrored uh, the improvement of Donald Trump's job approval. And then we just saw this sudden shift, and there's no other way to describe it, a sudden shift uh, about a week ago in both sets of polls. So it'll be interesting to see whether it, that keeps up or whether it just turns out to be kind of one of those things. I said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I said, uh, I didn't say earlier, I should have said one of the reasons we like to have Sean Trendy on is he's smart and he's accurate. And I remember his very astute analysis of the presidential election in uh, 2016, in which you pointed out a number of areas where if the vote turned a certain way, uh, it could go to Donald Trump. And you were uh, way ahead of the game, way ahead of a lot of your peers uh, in that regard, and we uh, we thank you for that. Thanks okay. for that. You know that that okay. was a, a classic example of how you know polls can move around, and you just have to be kind of you know not get too tied up in a, a poll and lose track of the big picture. All right. Well, I know you do a close read, so you want to talk, talk about particular districts, but we don't have that kind of time. And the congressional generic congressional ballots too you know too general. So what can we say about trends? 
uh, or uh, factors now? What what does it look like to you now? I guess is what my first question. My second question is, what does it look like to you in terms of what it will be in November, or what are the major factors that uh, will affect it? Well, I think right now we're headed towards a very close outcome one way or the other in November. Um, I think that uh, we're probably going to see, you know, it could still break open either way. There's plenty of scenarios where Democrats pick up 30 to 40 seats or they only pick up 10. But I think we're probably looking at something, you know, neither where neither party has more than a couple of points, a couple seats advantage uh, in the House. Um, the main thing to watch, though, uh, is the president's job approval, because these elections tend to be referenda on the party in power. Um, we, we see that going back now 70, 80 years. Uh, and so if the president's job approval uh, improves, I think, you know, Republicans are going to have a, a unexpectedly good election. But if it, if it falls back to where he's in the, the high 30s, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to keep control of the House. Lately, uh, Sean, incrementally, he's been going pretty steadily upward, slowly, but upward, correct? That's right. Like I said, there was a little bit of a kind of bounce back, uh, and I think it's just kind of the nature of the polls coming in and out of the averages, but there's a little bit of a bounce back in the beginning of June. Um, but yeah, since, since December of last year, he's probably seen his job approval go up five or six points, and, and that definitely has had a salutary effect on Republicans' chances of taking control of con- or holding control of Congress. I have a theory about that. You're the man to test it with. But before I put forward my theory, tell me why you think it's been going up. You know, I think it's a couple things. I, I think the ta- getting the tax cuts passed gave him some momentum with the Republican base, especially kind of suburban Republicans who didn't really care for his cultural stances but are happy to see more money in their checkbooks. I think he has toned down the tweeting a bit. Um, and I think the, Let me interrupt uh, the you. Mueller he... investigation is sort of, for a lot of people, kind of jumped the shark. Uh, and so I think it's not the drag that it once was. Let me ask you about the tweeting. I, I, it seems to me the frequency is pretty much what it's been. But I think people get, get got used to it. I mean, it, it's kind of wallpaper now. It was headline news before, and now it's second or third news story. It gets, yeah. to, be, gets to be so regular. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think there is a, a sort of, it's a combined kind of numbness uh, combined with, I, I think there's a sense of like crying, like crying wolf yeah. out there. You know, you, you get right. media frenzies over Trump's tweets and you think the world is going to end okay. and then things kind of go along as they were. And I think people are just kind of numb and, and don't really trust the Democrats and the media's interpretation of the tweets as much anymore. That's my larger theory, which is because Trump's the beneficiary of people's dire predictions, which didn't come true. There was so much talk about him ending the world and self-immolating or not lasting a year or doing some totally disastrous policies. Now people look and they say, well, he didn't end the world and he didn't self-immolate. burns his fingers from time to time, but the world seems to be moving along as it was, and in fact, the economy's much better, and, you know, 
give the guy a break. That is is that movement up in the middle? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, re- a return of soft Republicans and Republican leaning independents, okay. and so. I, I think that summarized it really well. I remember when he was elected and thinking, wow, you know, like having serious thoughts for the first time, like, are we really going to be here in a year? Um, because he, he seems so erratic on the trail. Right. And that erraticness hasn't really translated um, to dire policy outcomes. In terms of policy, it's been a pretty uh, typical Republican presidency. Um, now, there are people who don't like that, and that's fine, but that's not the same as the world ending. Yeah, and I think of, uh, I know you've probably talked about having an opinion of it, I don't know what it is. I, I frankly still like, I think it was Selena Zito's notion that uh, supporters of Trump take him seriously, but not literally. Critics take him <laughs> literally, but not seriously. And if you took him literally, you, you would think it might be the end of the world. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think that's a, a fair uh, characterization. And I think a lot of, I think a lot, I think not a lot of people, but I think there's a, a group of people that have changed. Now, I also think the the although the tweets are coming out the same regularity, you know, I think he's gotten smarter about them. He has never much gone after, say, Stormy Daniels. He's kind of let that go to his surrogates, which is traditionally how Republican, uh, how presidents deal with scandals. He's trained his fire more on Mueller and groups like that, where I think it's you know him attacking governmental agencies. And in that sense, it again is kind of more of a traditional presidency, where the presidency goes after governmental opponents, yeah. but doesn't really go after <clears throat> private citizens as much. He may have handed off the Stormy Daniels uh, commenting to surrogates, but those those surrogates haven't been shy. I was thinking Rudy Giuliani. Holy smokes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that does, that, you know, the surrogates have had sharp claws. But, you know, I mean, I don't know that what Giuliani has done is any worse than James Carville saying that, no, no. you know, no, Paul Jones is what you get when you drag a dollar bill through a trailer park. Uh, no, so. absolutely. Absolutely not. I remember that very well. remember that very well. All right, so the world's still in its orbit. Um the tweeting has calmed down a little, or we've gotten more used to it. Um, you know that business used to it. Do you me- did you remember that story about the guys on the island and the Pacific Navy guys, and they were bombed every day by uh, Japanese um, bombers? And the 33rd day, they didn't come, and the guy said, where are they? You know, they got, <laughs> they got restive. Where's the bombing? <laughs> Threw them off. Uh, this is under the category of you get used to anything. Routines are the condition of sanity, Flannery O'Connor says. But anyway, it's worth worth a thought. We are just, Sean, uh, just hours from the conclusion of the Singapore summit. Um, first of all, i got to comment here on the media. You may wish to or not. But I've seen a great divide in the media on Donald Trump. I don't think I've ever seen it more pronounced or maybe just more clear and their assessment and evaluation of the summit. I was watching the last two days, Fox and then CNN and MSNBC, and talk about a great divide. Holy smokes. Um, it's it's really quite dramatic. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a foreign policy guy. Um, so, and, right. and most, 
This is, I think, what's key is that most of the Republican foreign policy establishment hates Donald Trump as much as the Democrats. Yes. Do, albeit for different reasons. Yes, fair point. Uh, and so you can get you get these weird convergences where the echo chamber just feeds upon itself with Trump. Um, and so it makes it really hard for someone, you know, I, I follow Twitter and I have my conservatives and my liberals, and usually I can kind of tease out the truth by averaging them. But in a situation like this, you can't do it. So I don't entirely know what to make of it. Will it, maybe it's not fair given what you just said, but will this will this turn out to be a, a plus for Trump and Republicans as we head into the fall? Too soon to tell? Well, it it depends. I, I, I think I can answer that because, you know, you're not, I can say it depends on how it comes out, and I don't know how it's going to come right, out. But, right, you know, right. th- this is something where, you know, if five months from now, uh, you know, it looks like uh, Kim has played Ch- Lucy with the football and Donald Trump has gotten pie on his face, uh, you know, it's not going to be great uh, for Republicans. But, you know, if it, even if it bears minor fruit, I think expectations for what would happen with North Korea are so low uh, that Trump is likely to benefit. Do the Republicans, just a couple more questions again, we thank you very much for joining us. Do the Republicans need to do more? Uh, I was listening to Mitch McConnell the other day, speaking to, I think, the Faith and Family Group or, or something, and he was taking off accomplishments. Spent a lot of time on judges and uh, talked about other things. But have the Republicans done enough to merit the approval and confidence of the voters this November, or do they need to do more? And then I'm going to ask you the same question about the Democrats. It's hard to say. Um, you know, I, I think if if you're a Republican, you're looking at this and you're saying, well, you know, I might not like Trump personally, but he's gotten judges through. He's gotten all these executive orders. He's gotten the tax cuts through. You know, that that's not a terrible first term. If you're a swing voter who doesn't really care about judges, um, I think we, we can debate whether it's fortune or an effect. But, like, you know, the economy is doing a lot of work uh, for Donald Trump right now, keeping his approval ratings afloat. So um, for now, I, I think they've probably done what they can do uh you know if there's there's other more popular things that they you know would help them out that would obviously be good and democrats do they have a message they don't but that's the benefit of being the out party um it's the benefit you know you don't have it is because you can win an election by the other side messing up right Everybody puts all um, the discontents in your basket, in their basket. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. basically what happened in 2006. I mean, there was a, a core group of Democrats that ran against the war, but they also had a lot of Democrats like Heath Schuler, uh, a couple other folk who won elections who were supportive of the war effort. Um, you know, so the benefit of being the out party is you can kind of tailor your message to different districts uh, and just seize upon a general sense of discontent. So they could be the impeachment party or the resistance party and still do well because they could collect a lot of unhappinesses in one basket. Right. And then you can have people like Joe Manchin who are going to run in West Virginia yeah. as if they had been Trump's you know, best friends since high school. Uh, again, that's just kind of the, the benefit of the being the out party. Senate? Senate, I go back and forth on. I, I think there is a chance that Republicans lose 
the Senate, but I don't I don't think it's nearly as good as it was, um, you know, back in December, where I thought Democrats might even be favored. Republicans have managed to since the Roy Moore debacle, and obviously that's a big if. But <laughs> since the Roy Moore debacle, they haven't had they've avoided problematic nominees. Uh, and so that certainly helps as well. And so, so the odds of the Republicans holding the Senate are better than the odds of the Republicans holding the House. Oh, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think okay. the House is a toss-up and maybe even a little bit favored for the Democrats. Uh, the Democrats would need you know, a lot of things to break their way in order to control the Senate. Let's look at the trends of the two parties, the vectors, directions they're going where they where they are where they thrive demographically and what are the risks and rewards of the trends in those two parties who their who their constituency is where they live where they're going are there dangers for one or both parties and how they cultivate their base and grow their base yeah the democrats have a weird thing going on right well I, I guess i'll start with the republicans you know the republicans have this kind of growing populism um as a basis of their party uh and the problem is that you know they're, they're targeting it towards you know whites largely to whites without college degrees and that's a shrinking portion of the american uh electorate long term although you can win an awful lot of elections in the short term uh with whites without college degrees as your base um, you know, if Republicans can break beyond the race issue, there's a huge upside uh, for a party based on whites and non-whites without college degrees. And if you can somehow merge those into an economic and foreign policy message, you have a, a very strong party. I'll pause on that, would you? Because um, mm-hmm. I, I've read a couple articles lately in a um, site where you appear real clear about Trump trying to uh, cultivate the black vote. And he doesn't need to get a whole lot more, right? If he gets, what is it, 12, 13, 14 percent, that can sink the Democrats. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If he, uh, he got, I think, uh, 9 percent, 8 percent in uh, 2016. So just improving that a little bit. Because um, the Democrats, especially in the North, are very, in the industrial states, are very, very dependent on heavy African-American turnout and vote share. Um you know, the, Trump has some things like disinviting the Eagles, and I know that there's a mm-hmm. backstory there, and it's more complex, but I, I think that was a problematic move, and I think he needs to figure out. That's why I said the Republicans have to figure out how to tap dance on some of these racially right. tinged culture issues. But if he gets um, to 12%, that's very good for Republicans for this fall? Oh, yeah. The Democrats would be in a world of hurt if he got 12%. Okay. Well, is he anywhere near that? <laughs> you know, I, I actually haven't checked the racial okay. cross tabs right now, but uh, we'll, we'll have a better sense in November, see how the the different vote shares break down. Yeah, people said, well, the Jack Johnson thing and maybe the Muhammad Ali and, you know, Kanye West. I don't know. We're talking sports and entertainers here, but... Well, I guess the pardon of that that uh, that woman too, with the with the who served twenty one years on the on the drug sentence. Yeah, that's kind of the frustrating thing about Trump. If you're someone, regardless of party, who would like to see the racial uh, animosity tamped down a bit in this country, 
is that he's making a lot of the moves that could potentially lead to a breakthrough. Um, but then he does something like disinvites the Eagles, seemingly tone-deaf to the racial implications that has for a lot of people. Um, and so I, I think he's on to something. He just needs to refine it. And the Democrats, what are their dangers with the, their base? And not, well, I guess you just mentioned one. Three, you know, Trump gets three more point, points to the African-American community, and they're in a world, a world of hurt, as you said. Yeah, the Democrats, so the Democrats have this kind are trying to build this broad-based coalition of, you know, white liberals, moderate white suburbanites, uh, the leftover, you know, young college students, um, and then African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and it's very hard to see how those groups coexist. Uh, and right now they're just dependent on maxing out among the non-white vote share, which kind of drives them hard left on racial issues, you know, leaning forward and leaning in. Uh, and if they fall even a little bit short of their target, they, they just, you, you get what we got in 2016, because non-white voters are so concentrated outside of key swing states. Um, so I, I, it's a very unstable, it's a potentially powerful coalition, but it's just very unstable, and a lot of those groups very don't unstable. have the same interests. Unstable. Uh, we're going to let you go. Tell me, because uh, you're so much smarter than I am on these things, what are you thinking about or writing about that I didn't mention? What What do you see? Because you see more than I see. You know, I, I, think, I think the main thing when assessing these elections is to kind of stay out of the weeds and look at the big picture. You know, look to see how the president is performing look to see how much exposure the parties have. I think that's a key factor, that there are very, very few Republicans in blue districts anymore, which limits the upside for Democrats. They have to dig deeply into Republican-leaning districts to take the House. And then the trajectory of the economy. Um, I think those are the three factors that are really going to determine uh, control of the House this fall. Okay, we will leave it at that. This was very good, very clear, very sober, very intelligent, and we thank you, and we will start knocking on your door late summer, early fall, okay? I, I will happily uh, happily take your call. Thank you, Sean. Sean Trendy, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Hey, thank you very much. Have a good one. All right, we'll have to leave it there for now, folks. We covered a lot today. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. Thank you.